Hello and welcome to Immunity, your immunology podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Bianca Redenbaugh. And I'm Lara Dungan. And this is the podcast where we tell you all about the most exciting research going on in the world of immunology. So grab a cup of tea, sit down and relax, and we'll fill you in. We're here to talk about what research is being done, what new treatments we should be watching out for, and what's happening in the immunology labs and clinics all around the world. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at immunotpodcast at gmail.com. That's immunot, spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunot. Don't forget that's T-E-A. I'm extremely excited to introduce our guest for this episode. Dr. Stephen Holland serves as director of the Division of Intramural Research at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, in the United States of America. Stephen provides overall executive direction and scientific leadership for the division's basic and clinical research activities, which cover a wide range of biomedical disciplines related to infectious diseases, immunology, and allergy. In addition to this, Stephen is also a decorated researcher, having authored more than 700 publications and has been named an NIH Distinguished Investigator. He is a member of the National Academy of Medicine and has received the American College of Physicians Award for Science, the Boyle Scientific Achievement Award of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, the American Society for Microbiology Abbott Award, the Erwin Netter Award of the Association of Medical Laboratory Immunologists, the NIH Distinguished Clinical Teacher Award, and the Walter E. Stamm Mentoring Award of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, to name but a few. Stephen, you are so welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a real honor and pleasure to be here. So I suppose we're, we're with someone as experienced as you, we kind of don't even know where to start because you have so much in terms of varied research. But maybe we could begin with something that has been a big part of your work for a lot of years, which is STAT3. Could you give us a general overview of STAT3, maybe what its normal function is in human cells? Yeah, you know, um, STAT3 is such a fascinating molecule and pathway. And when you, when you sort of look at it overall, um, people recognized Job's syndrome in 1966. And yet it took, you know, 40 years or more than 40 years to identify the gene. And that's a little surprising given how central STAT3 is to so many pathways. And ironically, I think that's precisely why it was so hard to identify. Um, Unlike many genes that are involved in, you know, a particular pathway here or there where you can pick out a single function and dissect it out easily, STAT3 really functions at the heart of so many activities. And so, um, you know, in the normal immune system cascade, um, it's involved in everything from turning down interferon gamma to turning up uh, things like uh, suppressors of cytokine signaling. So it's got a duality in terms of uh, both uh, pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory activity. And although, you know, we, we tend to think rather monocularly about things that turn things up and turn them down, in fact, what makes STAT3 so interesting is how it um, modulates both up and down at the same time. And I think that made it very difficult to find. People were looking for, you know, the, the preoccupation with the disease called Job syndrome or hyper IgE recurrent infection syndrome. The preoccupation with understanding how IgE fed into the role of STAT3 
that preoccupation still remains pretty much unsatisfied. Um, I, I can't tell you why STAT3 controls uh, IgE, and I've not really seen a persuasive set of explanations so far. And yet that, that so distracted everybody because we knew something about IgE, we knew something about allergy, we knew something about eosinophils, but it turned out that all those things that we knew didn't quite get us to the right spot. So um, STAT3 is involved in a lot of different activities in addition to the obvious things that we talk about in terms of interferon gamma and suppressors of cytokine signaling, TGF-beta. It's got something major to do with wound healing, with um, you know bone and tissue remodeling. Um, and this really makes it at the center of so many different networks that it really is surprising how much converges on STAT3 and how survivable some of the defects with it turn out to be. What are some of these defects then? Can you talk to us about the different genetic mutations in STAT3 and what effects these have? Yeah, so, you know, um, early on, STAT3 was recognized a long time ago, and the first gene associations with it were in knockout mice. If you knock out STAT3, that's an embryonic lethal mutation. And it was not clear that there were any obvious effects of haploinsufficiency in the mouse model. And of course, there's some self-fulfilling aspects to that. You, In order to breed uh, animals in the old days, um, everything really required you had to be able to get to a, a, a heterozygote and uh, and then to breed them to homozygosity. So there was always a selection for um, survivable things, even in haploinsufficient uh, capacity. But so nowadays, you know, the first mutations recognized was Job's syndrome, uh, the disease 1966, the gene 2007, and those are dominant negative mutations. We need to be a little bit more careful than we were in the old days. We used to talk about loss of function, and that was a nice counterpoint to gain of function. But in fact, that's being too promiscuous with speech. We really have to be clear. Loss of function is what would be otherwise known as haploinsufficiency. And what we really are talking about with Job syndrome is dominant negative. So now we recognize that there are three different kinds of mutations in STAT3, similar for other kinds of genes. There's dominant negative, that's Job syndrome. There's haploinsufficiency, I'll talk about that in a minute. And then there's gain of function. And that spectrum of disease is one that you really see more often with transcription factors than you see with genes that are, say, structural, uh, you know, like uh, more typical receptors and uh, some of the structural components of cells that tolerate uh, haploinsufficiency or, or tolerate, I should say, um, you know, having uh, one allele missing much better than do uh, transcription factors. So the dominant negative, that's Job syndrome. We can talk about that clinically in just a minute. Haploinsufficiency has been a topic that there's a lot of discussion about. Um, we now have identified about half a dozen patients with um, heterozygous null alleles in STAT3. And those patients, and the only reason we, we meet them is because they show up with uh, typically uh, CNS involvement with either aspergillus or coccidioides, um, one of the uh, fungi that you only see in the southwest of the United States. And then there's the, the gain of function mutations, which are only described uh, in the last decade. 
and those mutations show up as a different phenotype altogether. They have much more inflammatory disease, much more allergic disease, uh, growth impairment. And so you really have a broad spectrum of mutations from dominant uh, negative to dominant gain with uh, a heterozygous loss in the middle. Now, what makes it even more interesting, and then I'll stop um, before you ask, is that it really is very specific to what amino acid uh, at what position. So um, years ago, after the gain of functions were identified, we realized that you could have dominant negative and dominant gain at exactly the same position, just depending on which amino acid was substituted, which is sort of a, a reminder that, you know, we like to think geographically. We like to think C-terminus does this, N-terminus does that. But molecules don't always follow the same sort of rules that we do uh, as we think about how we um, tolerate the topography of our own worlds. Molecules are doing something a little more complex, and uh, so charge uh, really makes a big difference in how they associate and either inhibit or, or activate certain pathways. Now, you've set me up beautifully for this next one, Stephen, but can you talk to us a bit about Job syndrome? I suppose, first of all, why is it called Job syndrome? And then after that, how would we expect patients to maybe present with this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, boy. Well, I, uh, now, um, so we'll, we'll be here till tomorrow. So it's called Job syndrome. So this is actually, I'll tell you two funny stories. The reason it's called Job syndrome is that the paper in 1966 by uh, Wedgwood uh, et al., um, started out with a quote from the book of Job, and it says, and God smote Job with sore boils from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. And this was one of the, the trials of Job, and I won't go into the, the religious background. I'm sure that this will be familiar to uh, many of your listeners. And they called it Job's syndrome because it was indeed the syndrome that Job had. As an aside, you, you may get caught up in this occasionally. There's a lot of back and forth about whether Crohn's disease, is it really, is there a possessive there or not? George Crohn did not have that disease. He described it, okay. And so some people think we should call it Crohn disease because it's named after Crohn, but it's not his disease. In contrast, Job's, that's his syndrome, right? Because that's what we said. That's the syndrome he's got. Okay, so that's the that's the, the published story. But the slightly more comical story is that right after we had identified this and published it, I guess, I got a note from Ralph Wedgwood, who was indeed the guy on the very first Job Syndrome paper in The Lancet, 1966. And he said, I have to tell you this funny story about how the name Job Syndrome actually got made. And he had been a resident I think in, in Cincinnati in the 1960s, and he was a chief resident in pediatrics, and um, they used to round with the chairman of pediatrics every Saturday, and um, the chair came in, and they would really try to stump him, and um, they presented him this case that, you know, was a kid that had all sorts of terrible problems, and they, as the chairman came onto the floor, they said, oh, we have a case of Job syndrome. They were trying to sort of, you know, um, psych him out a little bit. Well, it turned out that, you know, after they went through it, I guess the chair identified, no, that's actually chronic granulomatous disease, or they figured out it was chronic granulomatous disease. So these guys, you know, thought they had a great name for a disease, and they didn't have a disease to apply it to. And so when they finally met these um, 
two girls who had uh, boils that really were quite debilitating, just mournful sorts of problems. They said, oh, we've got the name for this, Job's syndrome. And that's, so it was sort of recycled from their first um, iteration of it. I thought that was a great story. And so how would you, how does that disease present? Well, um, and the reason that it's so uh, important uh, that they have that biblical quote is because Job is said to have had boils. And in the very first iterations of this disease, what people recognized were recurrent staphylococcal skin infections. In fact, now we've learned a lot more about it. And um, yes, recurrent staphylococcal skin infections are a major part, but they also get a variety of other problems. So, um, you know, what you might see as a clinician, um, they start out with rashes early in life, um, seborrheic dermatitis, and sometimes they can have a rash really at the moment of uh, birth. They can go on to have a variety of other problems like uh, pneumonias, and often those pneumonias lead to cavities in the lung after even it's been treated normally. Uh, and then they have um, scoliosis, you know, curvature of the spine, and then um, retained primary teeth. Um, you know, everybody's supposed to start losing teeth around age, I don't know, six or something like that. I'm an internist for all I know, it's, you know, 60, but I mean, they start losing teeth as children. And then the permanent teeth come in. In Job syndrome, that doesn't happen. The baby teeth don't fall out, or and not all, not true in all patients. They also get uh, aneurysms of the coronary arteries. They can get uh, Chiari malformation, an abnormality of how the cerebellar tonsils sit in the skull. So a whole variety of problems that the harbinger is sort of the infectious complications, uh, and then um, you know many of these other things that have to do with how tissues remodel and how how bones remodel, tissues remodel, really are at the forefront of uh, the clinical disease. So you've talked about Job syndrome. Can you elaborate more on the other mutations, haploinsufficiency and gain of function, and maybe you have good names for these syndromes? Sure. Well, the, the haploinsufficient mutations, um, so, you know, just a reminder, haploinsufficiency really means that one is not enough. And um, this is really a, a feature that's so typical for transcription factors. And the haploinsufficient STAT3, these are typically people who do not have the IgE elevation, the typical appearance, the other, the skin infections of Job syndrome and are only uh, coming to attention because they develop uh, fungal infections uh, of the brain. And it's only so far with Aspergillus and uh, Coccidioides, but there may be other fungi uh, that we'll identify down the road. And then the, the gain of function, they show up with a lot of rash and some very severe uh, arthritis and um, inflammatory lung disease. And whereas Job syndrome, we tend to treat with antibiotics to prevent infection. Um, in the um, gain of function disease, um, we have to treat with really potent uh, immune suppressive drugs, IL-6 inhibitors or uh, JAK inhibitors in order to um, really tamp things down. Uh, in terms of a good eponym, you know, the world has moved away from eponyms uh, in the last 40 years. Not acronyms. I'm, I'm constantly amazed that people are so desperate to come up with snarky names for uh, diseases, which, you know, speaking as a clinician, it may sound fun when you're at a meeting to say, oh, I've got a, you know, a disease that, um, you know, diver, or I, I won't go into any of the names that are out there now, but I hear people proposing these. And they sound like fun when you're in a meeting. But when you have to go in and tell a parent that their young child 
has a bad disease and they say, what's, what's the disease? And you say, well, it's chai. They say, really? That's a, you know, it, I, I know why we think they're fun, but I think that the world now has moved toward um, gene designated diseases. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. And, you know, the problem with speaking syndromically is that there are many different genes that can contribute to a syndrome. And um, because each gene will have a slightly different mechanism and a slightly different way to be inhibited or augmented, I think it's very important that we get specific. You know, we don't, we no longer talk about lung cancer as a single entity. We say, well, you know, that's got an ALK mutation or an EGFR mutation. And we think that's important because we've got drugs for those things. If we don't start speaking um, specifically, we will, we will lose the opportunity to come up with specific approaches. It's very interesting as well, because you have to be so sensitive to people who are suffering from these diseases. And um, just, I wonder, could you touch a little bit on a few things for me? And um, the first thing is IgE levels. Obviously, this is hyper IgE syndrome, but, you know, in our clinical practice, and of course, in yours, we'd have a lot of patients with very high levels of IgE. So can you touch on how important that is? And should we always be worried about a STAT3 problem with a high IgE? And then maybe a little bit about the treatment and management of patients with this syndrome in the longer term. Sure. Well, and I think you've um, you've hit the nail on the head there, and I, I really think this is why, as clinicians, we all start out from syndromic foundations, right? And just like we all we live our lives syndromically, you know, my my foot hurts, my head aches, and we think about conditions from their syndromic appearance. You know, that's someone with recurrent fractures or recurrent infections. The IgE, I think, has been a preoccupying feature because it was so easy to measure. And so the question about how should we think about IgE and STAT3, I think whenever you encounter a very elevated IgE, you should probably stop and ask yourself, could this be a STAT3 mutation? Yes. But the critical things that I would urge you to ask yourself are, you know, is this IgE associated with infections? And that's really the hallmark. You know, if you've got an elevated IgE and bad allergy or bad eczema, but not bad infections, it's probably not related to STAT3. It's probably related to any of the other, you know, dozen conditions in which you get elevated IgE or just bad allergies. And I don't know about in your practice, I'm not an allergist, but I don't get that we're coming that far in really understanding the causes of allergy. We've gotten a long way into treatment, but cause is still uh, elusive. In terms of how we manage Job syndrome, so the, the big deal here is to prevent infections. And that has everything to do with reducing the burden of Staph aureus by using things like uh, trimethoprim sulfa. Um, bleach baths can be very effective in cleaning the skin. Um, once people develop significant structural lung disease, we often add an antifungal like itraconazole or posaconazole to make sure that they don't get invasive aspergillus. And increasingly, we've been turning to bone marrow transplantation. And just this morning, I was speaking with Alexandra Freeman, who runs our program in Job syndrome here. And um, she's uh, been working with groups in the UK, in particular, uh, Andrew Jennery's group at uh, Newcastle trying to put together the, the global experience with bone marrow transplantation in this disease. And I, I think it's extremely favorable. And as we get better at transplantation in terms of the toxicity and, and the risk, I think you'll see that as an increasingly common 
approach to uh, addressing this disease. Seems like bone marrow transplant is the way forward for more and more immunodeficiencies. Steve, with someone as brilliant as you, there's a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to change topics here a little bit. Another key focus of your research over the years has been genetic conditions that predispose people to mycobacterial infections. Can you talk to us about some of these defects, and especially GATA2? Yeah, so when I moved into working in the clinical program here at the NIH, I worked with a, a man named John Gallen. John Gallen was really a, a giant here in, in the field. And in particular, he helped to define chronic granulomatous disease. And when I came into this job, John said, you know, you only have a couple of things you have to do. Number one, you have to um, help take care of my patients. I said, that sounds great. I love it. And he said, and then, and then once you get good at that, you have to go off and find your own disease. And I thought, what, you know, it's, this isn't like um, taking a hike and, you know, seeing if somebody left a, a candy wrapper out there. I mean, how do you do that? So I'll tell you how that happened for me. I um, was, um, you know, I just took a phone call. I was taking care of the CGD patients and I got this phone call from a pediatrician in Florida who uh, said, uh, I'm trying to refer some patients that I think have chronic granulomatous disease. And I said, oh, okay, tell me about that. He said, these guys, uh, this is a little boy, he's five years old, he's got disseminated mycobacterial disease, and he's so sick, he's on parenteral nutrition, he's getting a lot of antibiotics, I can't make him better, I'd like you to take him. I said, well, that sounds great, I love that, uh, that's, that's what I'm here for. And he said, and by the way, it's so interesting, both of his maternal uncles have the same thing. I said, whoa, that's weird. So it's weird for a couple of reasons. Now, of course, chronic granulomatous disease is predominantly an X-linked condition in North America, but chronic granulomatous disease does not, in general, uh, get complicated by disseminated non-tuberculous mycobacterial disease. So I said, that's great. Um, I'd love to meet these, this family and so on. Well, make a long story short, um, those people turned out to have a disease that 15 years later we identified as NEMO deficiency. But as I started accumulating, I got so interested in this because we treated this child with interferon gamma and he completely resolved. I mean, his infection went away, he came off TPN, he became an active uh, kid. It was just, it's the kind of thing that you just live for as a doctor. And then I said, wow, these mycobacterial infections, they're sort of cool, let's start seeing what we can do. And um, among the groups I um, started to accumulate was uh, people who had a funny pattern of adult onset disseminated mycobacterial disease. But when we brought them here and you know just did a, a typical complete blood count, we realized that they didn't have any monocytes in their peripheral blood. And um, that was 1992. And over the next 10 years or so, I got about 18, 20 patients to come here who had this same syndrome, disseminated mycobacterial disease, no monocytes in the peripheral blood. And we realized that some of them went on to develop leukemia, some of them went on to develop uh, lung disease, some of them um, stayed medium stable for a long time. And so 19 years after I admitted the first uh, patient with that, um, we really got serious about trying to track it down. And uh, Amy Sue in my lab started to do uh, genetics. We tried first doing whole exome sequencing and it was an abysmal failure. Uh, I can explain why uh, later. But then we went back to um, sort of the, 
the last refuge of the desperate uh, candidate gene searching. And Amy had brilliant insights into this and said, you know, as we started to look at the bone marrows and, and the fact that they really didn't just have monocytopenia, they had progressive bone marrow failure. And they were missing so many lines, monocytes, B cells, NK cells, that there must be a defect that was really early in hematopoietic ontogeny. And so we started to go through the genes that were in early hematopoietic ontogeny that might capture monocytes, B cells, and NK cells. And um, eventually, Amy got around to sequencing GATA2. And I still remember it was 7.30 in the morning. I was shaving. Uh, it was my daughter's birthday. I was getting ready to do things. And I pick up the phone, and somebody starts screaming in there, eight out of eight, eight out of eight. I had no idea what she was talking about. I thought she was at the horse races or something. I had no idea what was going on. And it turned out that all <laughs> of the people that she had chosen to sequence for GATA2 were uh, mutated in that gene, heterozygous mutations. And that got us really um, fired up, as you can imagine. And, you know, one of the very first things you realize, once you move from a syndrome to a gene, you realize um, what you got wrong all along the way. So one of the very first things we realized was that GATA2, although we had been identifying it on the basis of mycobacterial disease, um, not everybody who had a GATA2 mutation had mycobacterial disease. Some had only um, bad warts, some had only leukemia, some had lymphedema, lots of different manifestations. And we also realized that you know they could be completely normal for five, 10, 30 years of life. So now we suddenly are getting into a gene where there's an autosomal dominant pattern of transmission. It's heterozygous. Um, it's acting by haploinsufficiency. That is one copy is just not enough, but it turns out one copy is enough to get you adulthood, to get you reproductive uh, capacity, but not enough to get you um, through, you know, what we would consider a full uh, and healthy life. So really a fascinating gene completely changed my, you know, my thoughts about how to, how to consider genetic disease and, and really changed my thoughts about what's the difference between a transcription factor and a structural gene uh, and so on. That is a, an absolutely phenomenal eureka moment. I can't even imagine what that must have felt like. It was a blast. And, and, and I still finished shaving. But, uh, <laughs> did your daughter have her birthday party? <laughs> she, did. she did. We had a great, a, a great day. Um, and, um, you know, I, I look at that. I mean, 19 years from the first patient with the syndrome. So again, the syndrome I targeted was disseminated mycobacterial disease. And out of that fell many different genetic conditions, each one of which has a different, you know, need for management and a different uh, kind of approach and a different kind of, you know, family counseling and, and different kinds of problems. And do you think that we can reasonably explain the huge variety in presentation and in terms of syndromes and age? Is it to do with different mutations or is there still parts of it we don't understand? You mean within GATA2 or in general? Within GATA2. Well, that's a really good question, Laura. And um, all I can tell you is that I am working on that, as I'm sure many, many other people are listening to this. And I think one of the promises of accumulating, um, you know, a whole exome and whole genome sequencing 
is that we will eventually be able to uh, dissect out what are the factors that you know are, are from one gene affecting another sort of epistatic uh, effects i would just remind you that although as you know regular humans we can often look at a family and say oh those people are tall or those people are short and we can reasonably expect that tall families have tall children and short families have short children we know a that doesn't always happen but b the genes that control height, I mean, God, there are like 15 to 20 genes that control height. And I am unaware that anybody can look right now at a genogram and say, oh, I know that's that person's going to be 5'8", that person's going to be 5'2". Um, there are clearly a lot of factors that go into affecting that. That being said, we know that there are generational differences in um, GATA2 deficient disease, and it is my hope that as we accumulate enough families with enough individuals and enough phenotypic variation that we'll be able to recognize uh, genes that are regulating in trans, you know, the GATA2 locus. And so my expectation is that there must be a trans-regulating gene that is turning on uh, the remaining normal copy of GATA2 in people who are, you know, healthy until later in life and there then would you know be people who are missing that who would tend to be the people who get sick earlier in life. That's my hypothesis, but you know um, I'm hoping to get to that before I retire. But you know if I don't, somebody else will. You guys will figure it out <laughs> one day, maybe. I'm sure you'll get it though before we do. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You talked about different genetic conditions falling from a syndrome. In 2022, the International Union of Immunological Societies officially updated it to 485 mutations, causing inborn errors of immunity. Do we expect this number to keep rising, as you said, move from syndromes to genes? Well, will this number keep rising? Absolutely. And, um, you know, I'm constantly stunned when I talk to general audiences, and that can be general uh, infectious disease, general allergy, general internal medicine audiences, or general pediatrics, how few people are using genetic sequencing. And I don't know what it's like in Ireland, uh, but um, I can tell you that here it's still woefully uh, underutilized, and mostly because of cost. And there are some issues about um, interpretation, but but 90% of the problem here is a cost issue. So I'm absolutely sure that there are many more defects to be identified. That being said, there must be a, there will be a finite limit. I think if I had to guess what will happen, it's that most of the major defects will be identified over the next, you know, five to 10 years. And by major, I mean, single gene, you know, big time effects. Most of the major syndromes have um, already been identified. But there will continue to be an emerging host of uh, smaller uh, phenotype diseases. And then I, I fully expect and I anticipate what we're going to see is that polygenic diseases will be identified. And this is really still very difficult. We're not quite computationally or, you know, we don't have the data density yet to be positive about this. And, but you know that there are a few diseases in which people have said, oh, look, this is a digenic disease. That is one mutation in gene X and another mutation in gene Y lead to syndrome, syndrome A. So I'm confident that will be true. 
I'm also confident that will be much harder to prove. And given the very stringent level of proof that is currently required for most academic publications, it will take somebody a long time and a lot of money to get that out. But once that dam breaks, I think you'll see um, a lot of uh, polygenic conditions, just like we know that even within the same family, you know, siblings, they look alike. You can say, oh, I bet you must be so-and-so's sister. But there's also a lot of variation there. We, we all capture that in a glance, but we have not figured out how to capture that in a genogram. Variety is the spice of life. We just need to find a way to define it, I think, don't we? Steve, we could talk to you all day, but I'm aware you're a very busy man, so we better not. So I suppose maybe for someone who has many research interests as you, this might be nearly impossible to answer. But just to close the podcast, what do you think is some of the most exciting research that's coming down the line in your field? So it could be from your own work or from the work of others. What do you think we should look out for in the months and years ahead? Well, predicting the future is a notoriously uh, dangerous craft. <laughs> uh, I do think that that right now the field of autoimmunity is quite exciting and um, offers a lot. And the field of autoimmunity to cytokines uh, is one that I think is going to have significant impact. So let me just remind you that, you know, virtually everybody has some degree of antibody against cytokines, as well as against many other endogenous proteins. But they're at very low levels, they're typically low avidity, and as far as we can tell, they don't seem to make a big difference in anybody's life. But over the last 10 to 15 years, we've been identifying, we as a field, have been identifying um, antibodies against a whole variety of cytokines. And, you know, we, of course, as is true for virtually everything, we identify the extreme cases first, and then we only get down to the milder stuff later. But the extreme examples of anti-cytokine autoimmunity are antibodies against interferon gamma, GMCSF, uh, in particular, are, are very well defined. There's a lot of discussion right now about what are the antibodies against uh, type 1 interferon or interferon alpha and omega. What do they do? And in the context of COVID, they seem to be associated with pretty serious disease. I think that's true. There's no question that they're associated. And they probably have a causal role in letting people get sick earlier in the course of disease. The surprising thing is that they must have very little effect in most of the rest of life. They, they might affect susceptibility to some other viral infections, West Nile virus, maybe influenza virus, um, yellow fever virus. I think all of those are probably true. But that still means that for the vast majority of our walking around days, we don't know what they're doing. They're so common at some level, and, and depending on which estimates you, you like and what level of blockade you want to target, but somewhere between 1% and 5% of people, predominantly men, seem to be walking around with um, you know, significant detectable levels of autoantibodies against interferon alpha. I don't know what that means yet. There's, this can't, it's so common, it's unlikely to be unimportant. Uh, obviously maladaptive in the setting of COVID as are many different things, but it might have other um, reasons for other things. In contrast, some of these other antibodies like uh, GMCSF, which leads to pulmonary alveolar proteinosis, 
um, that seems to be a you know a, a pretty maladaptive uh, problem but it, it doesn't always lead to that. Sometimes they're associated with Crohn's disease. Sometimes they're associated with myocardia or, or cryptococcus. So I think that this is going to be a fascinating field of mimics of monogenic disease that will lead us to new ideas about exactly um, what's going on and how it's going on. So I think that'll be a, a hot area in the future. And I suspect that other autoantibodies will be identified in the not too distant future that are targeting other targets, either you know intracellular or extracellular or, or soluble, that may be other disease modifiers. Well, that is extremely exciting. Dr. Stephen Holland, Director of the Division of Intramural Research at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the NIH. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Wow, that was absolutely amazing. One of the things I find most fascinating is that STAT3 controls so much. So as Stephen says, it can push some things up and push other things down. And then so many things converge on this pathway. And yet a lot of the defects in the pathway are very survivable. Yeah, the thing I found fascinating was that this just goes to show that things in immunology and all of medicine really are constantly changing. When I was studying for my exams, STAT3 mutations were two things. They were loss of function or gain of function. But as Steve explained, we've moved away from that. So it's more three things, gain of function, and then loss of function is either dominant negative, which is Job syndrome, or haploinsufficiency. It is amazing how things keep on changing. And one of the other things that was so fascinating is that I feel like we were literally hearing from the horse's mouth about these discoveries. It was half a history lesson as well as a scientific education. It's such an absolute privilege to get to speak to someone like Stephen and, and hear all these stories from someone who has discovered and achieved so much in his career. Yeah, he painted quite the picture of their discovery. He certainly did. Well, look, I guess that wraps up another show. Bianca, over to you. What have you got in store for us? Lara, there's a joke you've got to to hear. Oh, gosh. You know what? I'm, I'm going to come right on board. Tell me. Stat. <laughs> so what do you get when you cross a man and a bat? I don't know. What do you get when you cross a man and a bat? A ban. Specifically, a lifetime ban from any science lab and likely a visit from the ethics committee. You thought I was going to say Batman. <laughs> okay. Right, that's it for this month. If you want to get in touch with us with comments or questions about the show, please email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. That's immunotea spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunotea. Don't forget that's T-E-A. We'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Stephen Holland, our executive producer, Professor Niall Conlon, and our editor, Aidan McKelvey. This episode of Immunity was sponsored by Farming Group. Thanks so much to you for listening, and we'll chat to you again next month. Goodbye for now.